0: As much as we'd like to think that cemeteries are eternal, that the ideas that shape them and the cemeteries themselves really don't change, if the history of American cemeteries is taught us anything, it's very much that cemeteries reflect the time, place, and ideology in which they are created. As we continue with part three of the history of American cemeteries, I'll discuss the next big revolution. This revolution is one that again reimagines what death is, that rebrands what the cemetery is going to be. And just as the rural cemetery movement took the word burial away and introduced the more romantic term cemetery, Greek for sleeping place, again, the term Memorial Park will seek to remove death entirely from the equation. Memorial parks, undoubtedly, are some of the most controversial topics in cemetery studies. Most people really look down on them. They see them as ugly and utilitarian and not terribly well planned. But understanding their history is important to understanding how they are a particular time capsule for how people saw death in the United States. And most importantly, how capitalism will always control us, even in death. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb of the View. Now, I have to confess that when I had originally written out this history, I was largely basing my story on the timeline of American cemeteries that's laid out in David Charles Sloan's The Last Great Necessity, which, I've said it before, I I think is the best, most comprehensive history of American cemeteries. If you are looking both as a scholar and as somebody for general interest, he paints things largely in the frame of New York cemeteries. So he includes a couple of other stops along the way. But I confess, I missed some things in between. Now, if you were to hit highlights, there are a couple of big ones in between. And so Looking at this three years later, obviously re-recording these episodes, I can say that with confidence now because I eventually went back and did episodes filling in the gaps. So what I will say is that you have the rural cemetery movement. It starts with Mount Auburn Cemetery being established in 1831, and it goes from there. Really the heyday of the rural cemetery movement, and this is something that I've never really seen somebody refute, but this is what I have come to observe from my own research. It only lasts about 20 years from about 1830 to 1850. Now there are certainly examples that are established after that, but for the most part, the hard stop for the rural cemetery movement is the civil war. So in that first half of the 19th century, you have a boom of rural cemeteries opening. Now, There will be cemeteries that take on some of the features of rural cemeteries established after the Civil War. I won't deny that. But in terms of organization and in terms of overall style, they're really not rural cemeteries. And this has long been one of my pet peeves as an architectural historian Because I will open up a National Register nomination or an evaluation that somebody does of a cemetery and they call it a rural cemetery. And I look at it and I say, "Mm -mm, nope, not a rural cemetery. And I know I talked about this last week, but I'm reiterating it. Because there are two big significant developments in cemeteries prior to what we're going to talk about today, which is the Memorial Park movement. The first is the establishment of national cemeteries, military cemeteries. So if you're interested in that process, I covered it very thoroughly. I actually did four parts on national cemeteries. Um, The part that talks about the establishment of it by the quartermaster general during the Civil War and the establishment of the National Cemetery at Gettysburg is in episode 36. So that's certainly something that happens after the rural cemetery movement before what we talk about today. The second is the Lawn Park Cemetery movement. And this one I cover very thoroughly in episode 52. And I will briefly touch on that now because it is very much the interim between rural cemeteries and the Memorial Park. And essentially what it starts to do is it starts to see rural cemeteries as being too cluttered aesthetically. And it starts to separate that out And offer a little bit more division as it encourages cemeteries to be more park-like. And I won't go into more now. Like I said, if you are interested, please skip ahead to episode 52 because it helps fill in some of the gaps. But I say that because I want to make a point that as innovative and as groundbreaking as Hubert Eaton's ideas were, there was already a mindset and an aesthetic that people were seeking out. And I say this because no idea just comes out of nowhere. I think that Hubert Eaton's vision is the result of a perfect storm of a couple of different things. Do I think that any other man could have accomplished as much as him? No. He definitely had the chutzpah, he had the vision, he had the money, and he had the perfect place to establish it. So that's my little intro there. Um, So where we left off, the rural cemetery movement had revolutionized the way that cemeteries are designed in a number of ways. They moved them outside of cities. They put them in the hands of a board of directors and were joint stockholder companies. They were working towards preservation. Now... One of the things that I touched on in the last episode didn't really talk about was the idea of perpetual care. I have heard Memorial Park cemeteries sometimes referred to as perpetual care cemeteries. Now, perpetual care is not an innovative idea. This is an idea that really starts to become widespread by about 1870. And the reason for this is is that the cemeteries, which are now in some cases close to 40 years old, need upkeep, and upkeep is very expensive. And if you do not have a main source of capital, which is selling lots of land, you don't have money to do that. So perpetual care from the 1870s forward is going to become an increasingly important idea. It is not yet mandatory, and in fact, in many places, it does not become mandatory for a shockingly long amount of time. Here in Georgia, it wasn't until the 1980s that perpetual care became legally necessary, which is why in Georgia, you can go to lots of cemeteries, well-kept, very expensive cemeteries, and they will have whole sections that are completely overgrown and neglected because that area is non-perpetual care. What perpetual care is, is essentially setting aside a portion of the sale price of every lot. General rule of thumb is between 20 and 30%. And putting it into an escrow fund, and that escrow fund will grow over time as that money is invested to help pay for the long term maintenance of the cemetery. The cutting the grass, trimming the trees, paving the roads, all of those things. So, without further ado, let's talk about Forest Lawn Memorial Park. Now, before it was Forest Lawn Memorial Park, Forest Lawn was just Forest Lawn Cemetery. It was proposed in an area called Tropico, or Tropico, depending on who you ask, um, which is today Glendale, California. This was on the outskirts of L.A. L.A. was a growing, booming city. And this cemetery was originally envisioned by a group of investors and businessmen. Now, a large part of the story of Forest Lawn is also going to be a story of really smart financial decisions. So over time, people figured out that cemeteries, while they were not a huge moneymaker, they could be a smart investment in terms of land and speculative land development. And that's essentially what happened here, where a group of businessmen, primarily from San Francisco, had invested in this cemetery. And oh boy, did they not know what they were doing. Because... Within about six or seven years of opening the cemetery, it was failing miserably. It was not doing well. And at this point, they reach out to one of the banks handling the money, which is in St. Louis, and they are asking for advice. Should they dump the investment? What should they do? How do they liquidate it? How are they going to solve this problem? And it's at this point that a young man named Hubert Eaton is going to step in. And he is going to change the, basically the entire future of this. So, Hubert Eaton, while he is often referred to as the founder of Forest Lawn Memorial Park, really doesn't come in until a couple of years after. But he is in many ways the savior and he is the visionary of Forest Lawn. So let's back up for a second and talk a little bit about who Hubert Eaton is. So, he is a young man from the booming town of Liberty, Missouri. He comes from a very traditional Christian background. He will go to a Christian college, William Jewell College, which will play very prominently in the rest of his life. He often is giving addresses there. His father graduated from William Jewell before him. He goes by the nickname Bo for much of his young life. He is born on June 3rd, 1881. And he actually has quite an interesting life after his graduation from college. He bounces around quite a bit. A lot of his work is done in mining. So a combination of copper, zinc, gold mining, all sorts of things. And he learns pretty much not just the technical, chemical, metallurgical side of this, but also in how mines are managed, in the financial investments of them. But... The very nature of mining is often that these are short-term assignments where you go and you work with them either to get them on their feet or sometimes the mine taps out. Now, I'm not going to focus too heavily on his early life, but I think it's worthwhile knowing that he had seen a diverse range of businesses and he had a background in financial investments, particularly speculative financial investments. And it's interesting because when he comes across this occurrence where he learns about this initially, he actually is going in because he is looking to his friend to get him a position. Now his friend, interestingly enough, is the vice president of the bank that I already mentioned. Now, it's interesting because in Hubert Eaton's biography, which is called um, First Step Up Towards Heaven, it is a wonderful piece of propaganda, and I chuckled through it. I haven't read all of it, but I've skimmed most of it. He's introduced as Charlie Marsh, a former uh, sorority—sorority, excuse me—fraternity brother of Eaton's from William Jewell. I have had a really hard time tracking down any information on this guy. I have seen him listed elsewhere as Charlie Sims of Mobile, Alabama. I don't know if that's a coincidence and people have gotten their wires crossed. Um, But regardless, he had placed an advertisement in the newspapers in St. Louis, where he was staying at the time, as well as in the Denver papers, which said, young chemists and geologists have gone, will travel. And so it's at this point that he goes in And he starts to talk to his friend who asks him if it's possible that he would want to go out and help this failing cemetery in California. And he talks to it, you know, in the sense that he's like, I've never done this type of work before. And this man explains to him that this cemetery was founded on a new principle. And this is where I think the confusion over the name comes from is that... Supposedly, a man named Charlie Sims in Mobile, Alabama, had started out the idea of selling what he called pre-need funerals. Essentially, selling people who are alive their funerals before they die. Now, this was a little bit more complex than just the idea that you would have a family plot in a cemetery that could be used over multiple generations. This was selling the kit and caboodle, a pre-need funeral package. And so Hubert Eaton sits down with his friend and they talk about the fact that very few people actually plan ahead. And so Hubert Eaton starts to think about this. And he starts to think that he might have an idea because this pre-need idea was not selling well. So he accepts the position and he goes to California. And he decides that he is going to sweeten the deal. And he says that people understand one thing and that one thing is money. And so if you tell them, that they are going to get a discount. A 10% discount. On their funeral. If they plan ahead. And if you pitch it to them. In the idea that you are doing a service to your family. Your poor widow will not have to make decisions. When she is so distraught over the lot of you. All of this stuff. Is really good marketing. And the pre-need sales. Start to shift. Now. It's important to understand that this is very largely held by a corporation at this point. So even though they have this board of directors, the cemetery is technically owned by the American Security and Fidelity Company. So Hubert Eaton has a lot of numbers to prove to this investment group, and he has a lot of things to fix. And so with a cemetery that's operating a deficit, even with improved pre-need sales, He has to show that he can change things. And so a lot of this comes from the idea that you need to sell people a vision. That it's not just about the bottom line of making money, even though, let's be honest, it is. You need to change your pitch, which he had already done, by framing it in a moral, Christian, upright citizen type of proposition. But also... You need to look at it as selling people something that they had never had before. So, he poses the question, what is it about a cemetery that it has to be so goddong ugly? Because he saw this cemetery, and there's lots of quotes about him walking down this hill covered in sad crabgrass and how brown and depressing it is. And the first thing he said is, we need water. We are in California. We were in a very dry climate. We need water. So one of the first things that he will do is he will build a water tower on top of the highest hill at Forest Lawn. The second is, is that he will start to look at cemeteries and see what he thinks doesn't work about them. And one of the things that he really feels does not work about cemeteries is gravestones. First of all, he thinks that they are funereal, funereal and depressing, and he does not think that they fit in with his new Christian ideal for the world, which is that, and he is quoted as saying this, the reason that they had gone through World War I and that World War I had torn Europe apart was that Christians focused too much on the crucifixion and not enough on the resurrection, and that this vision of death comes from this focus on Christ's death and martyrdom and not enough on his resurrection and the glory of the resurrection to save humanity. Bear with me, if you are not a Christian, I know that this sounds like a bunch of hooey. I realize that, but you have to understand that he was making a pitch to a people who were not having a good time. Even though this is at that point in the late teens, around the end of World War I, there is a lot of strife. And so the idea that he is pitching this beautiful next world, really powerful. The same way that rural cemetery movement had rebranded death from the depression of the Puritan burial ground, the fear of eternal damnation to returning to nature, he is rebranding this again. One could argue that he's selling the same story just using different packaging, but he is doing just that. He talks a lot about Christianity and the importance of Christianity to the world. Um, He is quoted in this saying very many times, quote, A man who doesn't believe in immortality doesn't believe in God. A nation that doesn't believe in God is either weak or corrupt. History shows us that when enough people in any nation don't believe in God, that nation disintegrates. Sounds a lot like the moral majority, but... Let's see how he's going to manifest this as a business model. The first is that burial grounds, the new type of burial ground, the Memorial Park, should depict life, never death. Two, to build a safe place for the dead that the living can enjoy. And three, spend a dollar on construction today to save a cent on future care. This was a huge shift. And so he started to do a lot of research. And one of the things that he comes up with is the idea of the memorial impulse. Now, he pitches this as the fact that 75% of all the places that we go to visit are memorial in nature, whatever it may be. So whether it's Westminster Abbey, the Taj Mahal, those are the two classic examples he always uses. They are places that memorialize Are dead. They memorialize our loved ones. And he says, quote, instead of beauty and honor as a first step towards heaven, there was a dark and dismal abyss between death and the future life. And so he says that the current cemeteries do not fulfill the needs. And so he starts to pitch this to the investors, and they don't really understand it. And there's a very famous story about a statue called the Duck Baby where this is the first piece of artwork that he acquires. And this was a piece of artwork that had been very famous at the Pan American Exhibition, the World's Fair in San Francisco. And he paid $886 for this silly little duck, baby holding ducks. Uh, It's a ridiculous statue. I will post a picture of it. And he came back and the investors are like, you spent $800 on what? For what purpose? And that's when he realized that they didn't get it. They didn't get his vision. So, on New Year's Day, January 1st, 1917, Hubert Eaton decides that he is going to rewrite the story. And he is going to rewrite the story of Forest Lawn. And he does this looking down the hill at Forest Lawn depressed and frustrated with all of this, and he writes what he will call the Builder's Creed. And please be prepared for some really big ego. Quote, I believe in a happy life, a happy eternal life. I believe that those of us who are left behind should be glad in the certain belief that those gone before who believed in him have entered into that happier life. I believe most of all in a Christ who smiles and loves you and me. I therefore know that the cemeteries of today are wrong because they depict an end, not a beginning. They have consequently become unsightly stone yards full of inartistic symbols and depressing customs, places that do nothing for humanity save a practical act and do not do that well. I therefore prayerfully prayerfully resolve on this New Year's Day, 1917, that I shall endeavor to build Forest Lawn as different, unlike other cemeteries, as sunshine is unlike darkness, as eternal life is unlike death. I shall try to build at Forest Lawn a great park devoid of misshapen monuments and other customary signs of earthly death, but filled with towering trees, sweeping lawns, splashing fountains, singing birds, beautiful statuary, cheerful flowers, noble memorial architecture with interiors full of light and color and redolent of the world's best history and romances. I believe these things educate and uplift a community. Forest Lawn shall become a place where lovers old and new shall stroll and watch sunsets glow, planning for the future or reminiscing of the past, a place where artists study and teach, where school teachers bring happy children to see the things they read about in books, where little churches invite, triumphant in the knowledge that from their pulpits only words of love can be spoken, where memorialization of loved ones in sculptured marble and pictorial glass shall be encouraged, but controlled by acknowledged artists, a place where sorrowing will be soothed and strengthened because it will be God's garden a place that shall be protected by an immense endowment care fund, the principle of which can never be expended, only the income thereof used to care for and perpetuate this garden of memory. This is the builder's dream. This is the builder's creed. And if you go to Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Glendale, California today, outside the great mausoleum, you can see a larger-than-life version of that with two small children staring at it in awe. Now, Hubert Eaton, at this point, is going to make a big play. And part of this will be largely due to his wife. So Hubert Eaton, up until this point, sounds like kind of like a nerdy little religious fellow. (laughs) But I also love that I found this great article from the year following him writing The Builder's Creed, 1918, that says, quote, there is another bachelor of the Jonathan Club. He was very involved in a social club called the Jonathan Club. Ilk, whose welfare we insist upon taking a passionate interest in, Mr. Hubert Eaton. You see, he is rather recklessly in specializing in widows. And recently, a new one has appeared on the scene who has cast an appraising eye on the gentleman As he is connected with a corporation that owns a cemetery, you can see how widows come to haunt his life. Okay, that's amazing. Um, And so it's interesting because the woman who catches his eye is actually not a widow. She's a divorcee, um, if they are referring to the person who I think they are referring to. And that is his future wife. So about 12 months later, he will marry a woman named... Anna Munger Henderson. She was a divorcee with one son named Roy, and she will be his wife for the rest of his life until her death in 1960. But she also comes with a rather sizable endowment. And I say this because one of the big power plays is going to 100% be facilitated by her. So with his ongoing struggle for power and to execute his vision at Forest Lawn, Hubert Eaton realizes he is going to have to make a power play with the financial holders there. Except he doesn't have the money to do this. He needs roughly $10,000. And what he will do is he will use that $10,000 to buy up the undeveloped land of the Memorial Park. So Only a small portion of it is built out for Graves, the rest is undeveloped, but holding that will turn him into a majority shareholder. Now, his wife does say to him, well, I will front you the money, to the tune of her owning roughly 125,000 shares in the company, but he refuses, and instead he makes the bold decision Two, in exchange for the stock for this company. Now, keep in mind, they are not yet really in the black. He goes to them and says he will forgo his salary of $500 a month in exchange for becoming a majority stockholder. Now, keep in mind, if the company fails, he fails along with it. He's still technically taking his money because she's going to keep them afloat while he's not making anything until they start to, you know, get out of the hole. But... It is this power play that really turns this around. And it's at this point that he really gains power. So how is he going to do this? He is going to do this in a couple of ways. All of the things I just described in the Builder's Creed, he is going to get rid of tombstones. Instead, his design is going to focus on flat markers or memorial markers. Now, This, again, is going to be one of his power plays, where he realizes that people are used to being able to buy tombstones. So what he tells them is that their plot will be cheaper if they elect to have a flat marker. Significantly cheaper. That if they want to erect a tombstone, there is essentially going to be a surcharge. And this is something that cemeteries still do today. Second, he is going to find a way to still make more money by introducing memorial features, most of which are statuary, high-end statues that are copies of famous pieces of art in Europe. Now, perhaps the most famous at Forest Lawn is going to be an enormous replica of the Statue of David. They are currently on their fourth. The first three marble ones were all destroyed by earthquakes because it is California. They currently have a bronze one because they're hoping that's going to hold up a little bit better. But the idea is that the closer you are to the memorial feature, the more expensive it is, the further out you get, the cheaper it is. So everybody essentially has identical flat markers, most of which are made of bronze. Third, he is going to centralize everything. Now, this is a predecessor of the model that is used by SCI. Yet another episode I would encourage you to go and listen to if you are interested um, in that aspect um, of cemeteries. And do I have the episode number? So episode 86 talks about Service Corporation International, the modern method of funeral homes, very much takes its cues from Hubert Eaton. So not only is it a cemetery, but it is a funeral home. All of the funeral facilities are there, so you don't need to use an outside funeral home. You don't need a chapel. You don't need a church because there are churches on the property. There was a funeral home on the property. There was even a florist shop on the property. And actually, I I got a big kick out of the story. Um, Vera Oldham, who ran the Forest Lawn Flower Shop for a long time, she was at the time, she was a single mother. She was struggling, and she applied for a job as a stenographer. And so she interviewed with Hubert Eaton, and the next day he demanded that she come out to the cemetery, which she thought was obviously highly unusual. And he told her, well, I found a better stenographer than you. He said, but I want you to run my flower shop. And she said, well, Mr. Eaton, I've never run a flower shop before. And he looked at her and he said, well, you can learn, can't you? And he told her to go out and study flower shops. And he said that their flower shop should be the most colorful, cheerful, wonderful place. And if you visit Forest Lawn today, the little flower shop that Vera Oldham helped him start is still there. And so this meant that you were making infinitely more money because all of the aspects of the funeral were now controlled by the corporation. Next, heavy emphasis on quality. This required a lot of capital up front, but in the long term, definitely paid off, as he had already said. The pre-need sales continue to be at the core of the business model. And this is something that, over time, they will capitalize on because they are also offering features that people didn't have. So, for example, even before Hubert Eaton took over, they had a crematory on the premises. They anticipated the rise in cremation. Again, this is just smart business, and this is the reason that a lot of celebrities will eventually choose Forest Lawn is because they have discretion, they have the facilities. Everything is very, very discreet and well taken care of. The de-emphasis on death. Everything is given new flowery names. They rebrand, you know, funeral parlor into slumber room. The deceased is dropped in terms of clients and things like that. So all of the marketing is updated to new terms. It's really fascinating. And it's fascinating to the point that it actually becomes the subject to of a lot of satire. So another, <laughs> another episode that if you are really interested in the criticism of this, which I know I did a lot of the criticism in the last episode of why people didn't like rural cemeteries. The main criticism of this comes from a very famous book called The American Way of Death, which I cover in episode 85. And that is the commentary published um, in the 1960s. So at this point, almost 50 years after Hubert Eaton starts his cemetery by Jessica Mitford, the very famous, the Mitfords were a huge family in England. She comes over here and she becomes kind of a muckraking journalist. That breaks down her criticisms about the price gouging, the ridiculous extras that don't need to be there. She absolutely destroys with this. And now she had written a series of articles long before the book is published in the 60s. I believe 1963 it's published she had been picking at this for years and her articles and criticism become the inspiration for Evelyn Waugh's satirical novel published in the late 1940s called The Loved One and so I happen to have my copy here and I think it's worth hearing so the opening of the book which it's a short little book it's only about 150 pages it says a warning quote this is a purely fanciful tale A Little Nightmare, produced by an unaccustomed high living in the brief visit of Hollywood. Readers whose pleasure in fiction derives from identifying the characters and scenes with real people in real places will be disappointed. If in the vast variety of life in America there is anyone at all like the characters I have invented, I can only remind that person we have never met and assure him or her that had we done so, I would not have attempted to portray a living individual in a book where all the incidents are so highly imaginary. As I have said, this is a nightmare, and in some parts, perhaps, perhaps particularly gruesome. The squeamish should return their copies of this book to the library or bookstore unread. Now, <laughs> you can tell that is all satire when you hear this. Quote, times without number since he had first come to Hollywood, he had heard the name of the great necropolis on the lips of others. He had read it in the local news sheets when some more than illustrious body was given a more than unusually splendid honor, or a new acquisition was made of its controlled masterpieces of contemporary art. Now, a notice proclaimed that it was the largest in the world and freshly regilt. Beyond the entrance lay a semicircle of golden yew, a wide gravel driveway, and an island of mown turf, on which stood a singular massive wall of marble, sculpted in the form of an open book. Here, in letters a foot high, was incised, the dream. Behold, I dreamed a dream, and I saw a new earth sacred to happiness. There, amid all that nature and art, could offer to elevate the soul of man. I saw the happy resting place of countless loved ones. And I saw the waiting ones who still stood at the brink of that narrow stream that now separated them from those who had gone before. Young and old, they were happy too, happy in beauty, happy in the certain knowledge that their loved ones were very near. In beauty and happiness such as the earth cannot give, I heard a voice say, do this. And behold I awoke and in the light and promise of my dream I made whispering glades Enter stranger and be happy. And below in a vast cursive facsimile read the signature Wilbur Kenworthy the dreamer Prices on inquiry at the admission building. Okay. So clearly it's a satire about Forest Lawn. <laughs> there's no other way to there's no other way to interpret it. And if you like that type of thing, I I would highly recommend that you read The Loved One. It it is pretty hilarious. Um, It was also made into a film, um, if you are more inclined to take the cinematic approach. But this rebranding, as many as there were people who thought it was ridiculous and liked to poke fun at it, was massively successful. And personally... If I were to look at it, I would say that Hubert Eaton, with his initial idea that he was pitching a lifestyle, was very clever. So when he takes this over, you know, you have a booming population of about 300,000 and a city that is ripe for an ideological change. Certainly, even today, we see all sorts of crackpat ideologies that pop up, you know, Scientology, Kabbalah, like that become popular among celebrities in particular. I think that Hubert Eaton understood Hollywood. He pitched a place of eternal beauty, of eternal youth, where everything was pretty and polished. And I confess that for a very long time, I was with people. I thought this was the silliest, most ridiculous idea. And I will also say that memorial parks that I had seen really just looked shabby and, frankly, crappy in comparison. And I could say with 100% that... This is an idea that just like the Royal Cemetery Movement, you know, most rural cemeteries don't look like Mount Auburn. Sorry, they don't. Because they didn't have the money, the financing, the planning, the strategy behind them. These high example ideas are often very hard to replicate. The same way that a piece of mass-produced clothing that you buy at Target might be inspired by a piece of haute couture but it's not going to be the same quality. And that's 100% true. Because I have sensed, when I originally recorded this episode, I had not been to Forest Lawn. And I have sensed, it is everything that Hubert Eaton promised and more. It is spectacularly beautiful. It is seamless. It is well maintained. It is magical. It is filled with these little churches that are exact architectural replicas of churches that exist in... In the old country. The Wee Kirk of the Heather. The Little Church of the Flowers. There's three... uh, And I'm trying to remember what the third one is. I had the dates written down for all of them at 1.2. And now I can't find it. So yes. The Little Church of the Flowers. Dedicated in 1918. The Wee Kirk of the Heather, 1929. And then the third is the Church of the Recessional. Dedicated in 1941. They are spectacular. The buildings are beautiful. The lawns are immaculate. And part of selling this was that he sold this as not just a cemetery. So the first wedding that takes place actually is very early on. So he receives a request in 1923 um, from a young couple, Kara Gregory Wells and Archie Milton House, to be married in the Little Church of the Flowers. In 1924, baby Starbuck was the first baby to be baptized there. By 1936, they had held 7,000 weddings. Then it got really popular as troops were shipping out to World War II and they were stopping over in Los Angeles. It became the place to get married in the 40s, including Ronald Reagan and Jane Wyman are married in the Wee Kirk of the Heather. And by the centennial of the cemetery in 2006, more than 70,000 weddings had been held there. So that's a good piece of trivia. Yes, a U.S. president did get married in a cemetery. But I think by making this a part of people's lives, he had suddenly transformed the idea. He had made people not just comfortable with the idea of death, but open and accepting of it because they were easily able to forget about it. And I think that the popularity, particularly with the Hollywood set, and I'll run down a list of some of the famous people, really helps out with this. Also, he makes it a tourist attraction. So their Easter sunrise service in the 30s is being attended by 30 to 40,000 people. It's like a concert venue. People come to see the artwork. The same way that these cemeteries were tourist attractions in the 1840s. You know, I talked about how second only to Niagara Falls, people went to see Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn. The same thing happens with Forest Lawn. And then to further capitalize that, as he is acquiring these pieces of artwork for the cemetery, Hubert Eaton decides to start a museum. So in 1952, the Forest Lawn Museum is started. Um, This is another one that I cover quite extensively. I have a full interview that I did with um, James Fishburne, who is the current curator of the Forest Lawn Museum. Um, that's episode 116. So if you're interested in the art collection at the museum, the role that Hubert Eaton played in becoming an art collector, definitely worth a listen. Um, I talk a lot about his famous paintings of the crucifixion and the resurrection, which are at the cemetery, um, the largest mural in the Western United States. So his contribution to art is beyond reproach to He also is smart. He is employing illustrators to make advertisements that are huge. Um, If you want to Google some of the advertisements, they're fantastic. I have some pictures I can definitely share. Um, He had a very close relationship with Walt Disney. In fact, Hubert Eaton and Walt Disney die within three months of each other. They died the same year in 1966. He understood the mindset of his clientele. And I think that is why that they were so successful. People seeking a new life in California, people seeking a new age way of living, this was a cemetery for them. It was about universal beauty. It didn't matter that you weren't actually seeing the Pieta or you weren't actually seeing the David in its original format. You were seeing something that was eternally beautiful. You were also seeing something that was very much like an exclusive club. And I think that was also a huge selling point. And unfortunately, that's why I think a lot of other memorial parks suffer in comparison. Is they didn't just have they didn't have the money or the resources that Forest Lawn did. They didn't have the leadership in the form of Hubert Eaton, and so they don't really play out in the same high quality as what he produced. Now, who are some of the people buried there? You, If you know me and you've been listening for a long time, I am not really a celebrity hound when it comes to graveyards. But I will say, obviously, probably the most famous is going to be Michael Jackson. He is interred in the Great Mausoleum. The Great Mausoleum was built in the 1940s. It's built; uh, it's based on the Campo Santo in Genoa, Italy. Unbelievable building. And the episode announcement for this episode is actually going to have a picture of the Great Mausoleum. He is buried in Holly Terrace. And no, you cannot access his burial site. That is another thing that is a huge draw about Forest Lawn is that it is very protected. It offers a level of privacy, and so that is the reason that a lot of celebrities do choose it. Um, Elizabeth Taylor, also interred in The Great Mausoleum. George Burns, Gracie Allen, Errol Flynn, Clark Gable, Carol Lombard, his wife, Lauren Bacall, um, Frank L. Baum, who created The Wizard of Oz. Um, Let's see who else. Humphrey Bogart, Mary Pickford... Natalie Cole, Nat King Cole, uh, Dorothy Dandridge, Sammy Davis Jr., W.C. Fields. Actually, let me stop for a second. Let me go back to Sammy Davis Jr. because this is also something that should be mentioned. Forest Lawn was also very much a product of its time in the fact that it was a racially exclusive cemetery. So for much of its history, I believe until like the 1970s, it did not allow for the burial of blacks, Asians, or Jews within the cemetery. Now, obviously, the Jewish piece is very much tied to this booming evangelical Christianity, which is at the crux of the entire pitch for Forest Lawn. Um, But the other stuff, again, very much a product of the time. It's one of those things that, (laughs) like, if you look at Forest Lawn, it feels almost obnoxiously white. But I will say that in general, and I, I have long maintained this, that the story of American cemeteries is the story of white Protestants in many respects, almost all of them. Any ethnic or different religious group is seen as other. It does not line up with the core ideology. So this is certainly nothing unusual. So, as with all cemetery innovations, this does spread across the United States. I will say that there are a number of memorial parks that are established, and these also feed into what will eventually become Service Corporation International in the 60s, 70s, 80s, up until today. They take over a lot of memorial parks because they are very cost-efficient to maintain, those flat markers, aside from taking away the ugly funereal images, make it a breeze to mow the grass. You could just mow right over them. Also, you have a lot of cemeteries who they start to evolve, and they have, may have been an older rural cemetery or a Lawn Park cemetery, and so they establish a new section which has memorial markers. And this is true of a lot. Which is why people, like, will look at certain sections and be like, oh, you know, those have the garden style markers. That is a far more common occurrence. I have not seen many other cemeteries that are established on quite the level of Forest Lawn. However, Forest Lawn itself is pretty prolific. If you look at their website, they have 11 different cemeteries. Um, They are established throughout the periods of history. Um... Some noteworthy ones are Covina Hills, Hollywood Hills, Long Beach, Cathedral City, um, and they take on different themes. So, for example, the Hollywood Hills theme has a very, like, all-American, has a replica of the old stone church in Boston, um, it has a giant mural of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. They have kind of, like, their own themes, whereas Forest Lawn in Glendale is far more old-world, like, Renaissance art. I have only been to the original one. I have since talked to folks who have said, like, oh, you need to see the other ones because they're just as noteworthy. Um, And all of them have just as many celebrities who are buried in them. They they are all very popular with that kind of jet set. Forest Sloan also, (laughs) interestingly enough, like they like, you can find certain famous memorials on Find a Grave, but they have not released, like, how many individual burials they have there. They still keep it very close to the vest, I think, because they still... They don't want to call themselves a graveyard, and so by being on find a grave, that puts too heavy an emphasis, I think, on the funereal part of it, just my personal theory, but I think also part of it is to protect anonymity. So as I already said, Hubert Eaton dies in September of 1966 of cardiac arrest in his very impressive mansion uh, on Greenway Drive in Beverly Hills. Um, His wife had predeceased him by six years. Um, He has his stepson, but he has no direct descendants. Um, So his sister, who had worked for many years as um, director of operations, her name was Mabel Llewellyn, her children will actually be the ones that carry on the legacy. So her son Frederick will serve as president of Forest Lawn for many years. And I can't remember if it's his brother or his son, John Llewellyn, after that. And it's really funny because I actually had a John Llewellyn book on my shelf that I did not realize was written by Hubert Eaton's great nephew (laughs) until I actually started to do the research. And it's one of those things where you realize that uh, it is a surprisingly small world in cemetery studies. So Forest Lawn still continues to this day, incredibly successful, incredibly influential, even to this day in terms of just overall style design and particularly sales techniques with cemeteries. Hopefully you enjoyed that little peek, brings us up kind of to the modern day, looks at a lot of the innovations in cemetery design. As always, if you are enjoying the podcast, please rate and review Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you are listening. It does help make me much more searchable. I will be continuing with more of the re-recorded episodes. Um, Three should be dropping with this batch. I'm kind of doing them in batches of three. That seems like the most effective way to do it, which is about re-recording one per week (laughs) at this rate. Um, been doing a lot of episodes with interviews, so that requires a little bit more editing, but we will get there eventually. Follow along on social media. I'll be sharing some other tidbits um, with you if you are listening along to these earlier episodes on the re-listen. That way you can kind of take a peek at some of the things that I'm talking about. And I will be dropping new episodes as well, so stay tuned for those. Thank you to all of my new listeners. I know a lot of new people have found me as a result of re-releasing some of this information. So I'm very excited to have you on board for this journey. Stay safe. Have a great week. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb of the View.